Hey everyone, welcome to the question show. Your questions, my answers. Wait, that was backwards. Your questions, my answers. So as always, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I'll gather them up and I'll answer them here. Just another reminder, I do the show every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to be part of the live show, there should be an event somewhere around on my channel where you can see where the next live channel is. Also, I put the the link to the next live show in the newsletter every week. So if you want sort of an easy way to click and and get a reminder for when we're going to do the live show in case you always keep forgetting to show up, uh, that's a way that you can do that. All right, so let's get into the questions. Stompy LP. What are the time scales of a supernova? How long does the collapsing of the star take? So it depends on the size of the star. A couple of weeks ago, I guess I talked about how a supernova works. What causes a core collapse supernova to occur? Essentially, the star is fusing hydrogen into helium, and then it runs out of hydrogen as core, switches helium into heavier elements like oxygen, carbon. Eventually, it moves all the way up the table of elements until it gets to iron. And then because it can't derive any energy out of the fusion reaction of iron, the fusion reaction inside the star stops and the thing collapses in on itself. And it's sort of like, like, what does that mean? Like, what does collapse in on itself? Like, how quickly does this happen? And it happens very quickly. It essentially happens as quickly as the laws of physics will permit it. Because essentially, you've got all this outward force that is holding the star back from collapsing in on itself and turning into a black hole. The moment you get iron starting to form in the core of the star, the entire star internally just stops releasing energy. And so then all these outer layers start coming inward. And at their fastest point, very quickly into it, they're going about 70% the speed of light. So literally relativistic speeds as this material is collapsing in on itself. And so imagine a star that is the size of Mercury, and it's a couple of light minutes away. Well, it's going to take a few dozen seconds for the supernova to collapse in on itself. Maybe if the star is bloated all the way out to, say, you know, a larger size, then it's still going to be on the matter of minutes. And then the actual sort of brightening and explosion, of the star happens over dozens of seconds. Again, this supernova explosion and detonation takes like 100 seconds to happen. And then you've got this bright object, this incredible glow, this material that's super hot blasting out in all directions. And it will slowly decrease in brightness over the next year or so until it fades away to to let us like hard to see again. King Maja. I'm a bit confused. If a star spins too fast, you said its momentum could pull it apart. Could such a thing happen to a black hole? How fast would it have to be spinning? Do I mention this in a previous video? Um, that as a star spins faster and faster and faster, it's kind of like being on a merry-go-round as it goes faster and faster and faster, you have a harder time holding on to the merry-go-round. So if the star spins faster and faster, it flattens out and becomes a lot wider in the middle and the poles come closer and closer together. And eventually, the outward force of this rotation is greater than the gravitational force that's holding it together. And the star just spins itself apart. And there's actually like a limit like astronomers have seen a maximum speed that stars can rotate. And you would assume that the ones that rotated faster than that just tore themselves apart. There's a maximum speed that asteroids can rotate depending on what they're made out of. And again, it's like 
any that rotated faster than that would have just torn themselves into pieces. And so the question you're asking is, can a black hole do the same thing? And the answer is no, because nothing, not even a black hole can escape a black hole. But black holes do rotate. And as they rotate faster and faster, the thing that happens is the event horizon around the black hole starts to flatten out like a planet that's rotating too fast, like a star that's rotating too fast. And the event horizon flattens out and flattens out. And as the parts of the event horizon close in on the singularity, um, it's going faster and faster, and eventually approaching the the speed of light, essentially the limits predicted by Einstein, I forget the exact number, but it's like, again, it's like 70% or something like that, is like the maximum speed that a black hole can rotate. And then at this point, essentially, it's starting to run into relativity, literally the fastest that it is possible for it to spin. It can spin faster than the speed of light. And so there's this idea, there's this, this concept where could you have a naked singularity? Could you have a black hole spinning so fast that the event horizon would flatten out to the point that it would reveal the singularity and it would give a sense of, you know, we could look at the singularity and know what it is. And the answer is no, that essentially the event horizon can shrink down, but it can never shrink down to the point that it reveals the singularity and it can never tear itself apart. There's just a limit. Black holes reach this ultimate speed limit. And that's, and even as you add more mass to them, and as you keep trying to spin them up, they resist spinning any faster than that. Nuno Fernandez. So will James Webb actually launch before Half-Life 3? Like, is it, come on, is Half-Life 3 ever going to actually happen? Like, there's, there's, like, it's done. We've, we've had our chance. It's never going to, that's never going to happen. So nothing will take longer than the launch of Half-Life 3. But anyway, let's talk about James Webb. Yeah, James Webb is continuing a pace. And you know, now I think we can stop joking about how long James Webb is going to take to launch because all the pieces are in place at this point. James Webb is at the launch facility in French Guiana. The upper stage has been delivered as well. The fairing is there. The booster stage has been set up. And now it's time for the assembly. And so they're going to stack the first stage, they're going to put the second stage on top of that, they're going to put James Webb inside the launch fairing, they're going to stack the whole thing, they're going to walk it out to the rocket pad, and they're going to launch it. And so still we're on track for launching James Webb, December 21st, I haven't heard any delays. And so I think what we'll probably see at this point is we'll get to December 21st, and maybe there's going to be some rough weather. And so they may push back a day or two. But but there's no big reason why they wouldn't just launch James Webb uh, approximately that date. There's no more tests. There's no more fixes. There's no more delays. This thing is going to launch. Clay Ben Treese Jr. What is your opinion of the Apophis asteroid? The Apophis asteroid is one of the asteroids that astronomers have identified as coming very close to the Earth in the future. And for the longest time, this was considered the most dangerous asteroid. It would at some point, and I forget the exact time, like in the 2040s or something, it would have a very close flyby of the Earth. And then that would push it into a trajectory that had the potential on the next orbit around have it actually collide with the Earth. But astronomers have done a ton of new observations of Apophis, and they've downgraded the risk to essentially negligible. So at this point, 
I think the the estimate is like for the next at least 300 years, there's no risk of Apophis striking Earth. So you can sort of scratch that off the list of close asteroid encounters. That said, when it does that close flyby in a decade or two, it's going to get really close to the Earth. And so it will be a really fascinating time to be out with a telescope or binoculars and actually watch this asteroid as it comes disturbingly close to the Earth, a fairly large, bright asteroid. It's going to be like this fairly bright star in the sky that moves through our field of view, sort of, uh, I mean, I don't know the exact brightness that it's going to be, but I'm sure as we get closer, astronomers will do a lot of interesting predictions, and we'll be able to go out and watch it. This happens fairly regularly, where astronomers make some calculation of an asteroid that's going to come pretty close to the Earth. And usually the brightness is within the capability of a pair of binoculars or a small telescope that you can go out, look in the right location and watch as you know, usually you can't see it like moving the way you can watch a satellite move, but you take a bunch of pictures, you can actually capture its movement as it moves through your field of view. And so at this point, when Apophis comes through, we're going to get a shot at it. But you know, obviously, there's a lot of asteroids out there. One of them has got our name on it. Many of them have our names on it. And so we're going to want to keep an eye on them and perform these calculations and do better observations to try and pin down any asteroid that has a chance of threatening the Earth. Ted Krauss, can a magnetar collapse into a black hole? So a magnetar is just another type of neutron star. Like when a star that is many times the mass of the sun dies in a supernova explosion that we talked about in the beginning, it can leave behind either a neutron star or a black hole as its remnant. How a magnetar actually forms, astronomers are still trying to figure this out, but it seems to have something to do with some kind of binary companion. So you get a neutron star, but you also have like some kind of like accretion disk around the star or like a binary star that's orbiting around the star. And the interactions with the star and accretion disk can whip up the neutron stars magnetic field to the point that it becomes a magnetar and essentially has this incredibly powerful magnetic field, like so powerful it could dismantle you at an atomic level. And of course, the other thing that we see with fresh neutron stars is pulsars. So you've got this neutron star that's spinning hundreds of times a second, and releasing these powerful blasts of radio waves. And they use them for timing and all kinds of interesting things. And then slowly as these neutron stars get older, they wind down, they slow down, and they just become boring, plain old, regular neutron stars, as opposed to cool magnetars or pulsars. And so the question you're asking is like, can you add mass to a neutron star to turn it into a black hole? And the answer is probably maybe. So if you add mass to a neutron star, obviously, you're going to reach a point where it can no longer be a neutron star. And so the question is, one idea is that when that happens, it suffers another core collapse and detonates as a different kind of supernova and disappears entirely. The other possibility is because you're adding material so carefully as it's sipping away at some binary companion, it's adding just a little bit of material at a time that there might be some intermediate form in between a neutron star and a black hole. Like maybe you could have a star that's made entirely of quarks, like a quark gluon plasma, and it's smaller than a neutron star, but you could still see it. 
like is you'll escape the gravity of this object. So as you add more material, keep sipping away at this companion star, you cross over this limit where the forces holding the neutron stars from smashing into each other, all the neutrons, all the particles inside of it crunching into a black hole is overcome and it collapses down in and disappears because now not even light can escape this object. So you know, it's still various points of, of controversy as astronomers are still trying to figure this out. And so stay tuned to see if we can sort this out. Hopefully, there are various tools out there, like maybe we could detect one of these objects exploding, maybe we could detect an object that is giving off a type of radiation, a signature that tells us that it might be one of these intermediate sized objects, we might be able to detect the moment when a neutron star collapses into a black hole. So uh, yeah, it's a pretty interesting idea, though. Cypercharged. Rough guess about when the Kessler syndrome, no return point will be reached. So the day that we're recording this, uh, we just learned that the Russians tested an anti-satellite weapon on a one of their own satellites, destroyed it and sprayed like 1500 pieces of trackable debris into orbit around the Earth. And the astronauts on board the International Space Station, the cosmonauts, they had to hide inside their escape vehicles as one of the parts of the debris came uncomfortably close to their position. No, there was no problem. Nobody was harmed. They were able to come back out a little bit later. But still, that's a lot of debris to have in low Earth orbit. And you can imagine some future when these pieces of debris are crashing into each other and forming smaller pieces of debris, and they're all crashing into each other. And we get to this point called the Kessler syndrome. This is the theory that you'll reach this point where there's just so much just this debris cloud and everything's moving at 28,000 kilometers per hour that there's literally no way to launch anything into space to get through this shrieking shield of metal. And the reality is, is that it will probably never be the case we will never reach this point where space travel is impossible. The future is more that it's like going to be friction. So there are going to be more and more pieces of debris that it's going to require launches that are more careful, you're tracking the larger pieces of debris, the smaller pieces of debris, you're waiting for windows when you can launch in a fairly debris free region. So instead of it being just imagine like one day, all of these satellites start colliding into each other, and then we're cut off from space. It's more like you're having to be more careful. It's longer delays, more expensive, you're having to put more shielding on your equipment to try and prevent the damage from the smallest stuff that isn't going to catastrophically destroy your spacecraft, but it's going to cause some some minor damage. It's just a pain. It's an expense that's going to increase greater and greater and greater over time. I mean, it's sort of like the same thing with with climate change, like climate change isn't going to destroy humanity overnight. It's just going to be that people who live on the beaches are going to have to abandon their homes or pay to keep the beach maintained. People who live near places that can flood on a regular basis are going to have to rebuild their homes again and again, like there's just going to be this cost of living that's going to go up and up and up. And that's the current idea on what the future of spaceflight is with more and more space debris. Now, the great thing is that over time, space debris will decline again, because this stuff will get absorbed back into the Earth's atmosphere, burn up and will clear out. And you're looking at in some cases, a year, in some cases, decades, 
in some cases for the high stuff, you're looking at thousands of years. So really, but then at the highest regions, space is a lot bigger. And so it's this kind of complicated, you got to sort of think about all the different spheres for where this debris is interacting and how quickly it can clear itself out, but also how much space you've got to work with. So it's, it's not that simple. It sucks, but it's not a total showstopper. More questions in a second, but first I'd like to thank our patrons tomorrow. Wilson TX Sierra, Joseph Salmoné, Chuck Hawkins, Neuter Dude, and the rest of our 794 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today. Helmet Bambuka. If something went wrong with James Webb, would we really not try to fix it? Right now, there is no way to fix James Webb if something goes wrong. So let me sort of explain what's going on here. So James Webb is never meant to be serviced. It is flying out to the Earth Sun L2 Lagrange point, which is 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth. The moon is like 285,000 kilometers away from the Earth. So James will be five or six times farther away than a human spaceflight has ever gone. We've gone around the moon and no farther. And so nobody's ever done a mission out to that distance. Is it theoretically possible? Yes. But you're looking at James Webb is going to take about a month to get out to its final location out in the L1 Lagrange point. So you're going to need to have like, you're going to send humans to do the repair. You're going to need probably a month to fly out to interact with James Webb, they're gonna have to spend a certain amount of time, and then they're gonna to have to be able to figure out a way to get back on the return side of that mission. Because you, you're gonna to go to the L2 Lagrange point, it's sort of like climbing a mountain, and you're teetering at the top of that mountain, you'll be fixing James Webb, and then you've got to fall back down the gravity well, come back down to the Earth. So it's very tricky orbital mechanics to be able to do this entire mission, you're looking at multiple months. So it's probably not worth it. You would need to develop entirely new spacecraft, entirely new methodologies to be able to support a mission of that kind of length. In the future, you can imagine it would certainly be possible. And who knows, right? Like maybe you could send out a starship with like a, because it's so much bigger. Starship could almost chomp James Webb at one go. And maybe a starship could fly out, chomp James Webb, bring it back to Earth, it would probably damage it pretty significantly, but maybe it could be repaired and then launched again by a different starship. The other thing is, is that it's designed to sit on top of the upper stage of its rocket. So it has this docking ring built in. And inside that docking ring are the propellant ports that connect up to James Webb and fill it with its propellant and electricity and all that kind of stuff. And so in theory, you could send a spacecraft that mimics the docking port that it sat on, it could dock on with James Webb, and it could provide say propulsion, or additional electricity or transfer more propellant or things like that. Um, or maybe bring it back to a different orbit if you built something really beefy. So there are like science fiction ideas on how we could repair or bring James Webb back to try and do work on it. My guess is that if you actually did out did all the math for all that, it would end up being too expensive, too risky, not worth it. So at this point, the plan is James Webb's on its own. Zen eats. Do you think a permanent moon base is feasible within the lifetime of the younger generations? Yeah, I, I, I like to think that I'm part of the generation that will see a permanent moon base. Um, I don't think a permanent moon base is going to be that far off at this point, especially if Starship 
actually works. But even if Starship doesn't work, I think you're going to see Artemis one is going to be launching in February, it's going to just do this flight around the moon uncrewed Artemis two is going to send humans to start working on the deep space lunar gateway, Artemis three, and I think it'll be Artemis four in 2025, that's going to be the one that lands humans on the moon. And I wouldn't be surprised if within a couple of years after that, probably by the end of the decade, we will see some kind of lunar permanent base. And it's nothing fancy, it might just be like a starship with various decks inside where people are, are living and working. Like I think the technology has increased, our capabilities have gone up. And we've seen what happens with the International Space Station for so many years that now I think it's perfectly reasonable to expect that NASA, or the Russians or the Chinese or SpaceX uh, will have the capability to be able to do that. And there's all kinds of great science reasons to have a permanent base on the moon. So I don't think we're going to wait that much longer from this point. So I think even with a base on Mars, like I think we're going to have a permanent base on Mars by the end of 2030. So within 20 years from now, we should have a science base on Mars where astronauts are going, they're living in this base doing work, they're on rotations are coming back to Earth, new crew is heading out. If you haven't already check out for all mankind, which is on Apple TV, and it's, it's a terrific show. And they do a really great job of showing what a permanent lunar base would probably look like how it would grow to become a more permanent habitat. Check it out. Eric one. Do you think that spin launch can actually pull off putting a payload into orbit? Within the last week and a half or so, uh, this company called Spin Launch demonstrated a, a kind of an amazing, really innovative style of rocket. And so what they've got is they've got this giant ring that sits out on the landscape. And then they've got this incredibly strong tether inside. And then they've got the rocket and they spin this rocket around or the, the payload, the bullet inside this ring faster and faster and faster. And then they released it sort of like a sling. And the payload went up like 10 kilometers. And this was a small version. And so this was a, to, a prototype to test whether or not this will actually work. And so they're going to do some more tests, and then they're planning to scale this thing up. And the goal for spin launch is that they'll be able to put things into almost orbit, purely through this spinning kinetic energy throwing it, it'll have an upper stage because you can't go into orbit with a single kick people was asked, you know, could Superman punch a person into orbit and he couldn't, because no matter how hard Superman punches you unless it's full escape velocity from the earth, you're going to go on a trajectory and come back down to earth, even if you are going fast enough. So you need a second kick. So the spin launch will throw the thing into the right angle, and then it will have a rocket on board to circularize its orbit. Do I think it's going to work? Well, the other thing is that the payloads are going to be fairly small. I think their limit was a couple of hundred kilograms for the payload. So fairly small satellites. And the kinds of forces are ludicrous, like 10,000 G's. So you need to build a payload that can handle ludicrous accelerations, which they can that level of G force is still possible to be able to sustain. So the question is, then is this going to work? And I mean, they think it's going to work, they've done the math, I mean, the fact that they built a prototype, and threw something 10 plus kilometers into the air is astounding. 
And so it feels like it's feasible. And if they do pull it off, then it seems fairly inexpensive, right? You just you, you use electricity, the things down on the ground, you spin it up at this incredibly high rate, you release the payloads, they fly up almost into space and the, the rocket takes over and completes the orbit. Um, I'm pretty excited. Yeah, yeah, they did a great job. Alexandru Vadiman. What would be the temperature on the dark side of Venus as the planet is spinning around itself more than a year? Thank you. From what we know, the temperature of Venus is the same no matter where you go around the planet. It's like 470 degrees Celsius no matter where you go, hot enough to melt some kinds of metal. And it's the same whether you're at the poles, whether you're at the equator, whether you're on the day side, whether you're on the night side, the temperature is always the same. But in the last couple of years, the European Space Agency's Venus Express mission was able to do some really interesting imaging of the Venus atmosphere, as well as the Japanese Akatsuki spacecraft, which is imaging Venus. And what they found was, that, as you said, right, because the night on Venus is so long, the atmosphere gets up to some weird stuff while this is happening. And so what they found is that you get this phenomenon called super rotation of winds where the wind speeds actually increase by a factor of about 60 on the far side of Venus. And this is sort of like just the beginning. Of course, NASA has two missions planned to go to Venus one that's actually going to drop an atmospheric probe into the clouds of Venus to detect what's going on with the winds at various levels as it's falling into Venus. So I think that there's more going on with the dark side of Venus than we had originally thought. And it's a tricky thing to observe because it's not illuminated. And so astronomers are figuring out ways with the existing spacecraft and with new spacecraft to try to tease out what's actually going on with Venus. So the temperature is probably the same no matter where you are on Venus. But the atmosphere does behave differently on the dark side of Venus. I love that see you on the dark side of Venus. B. Guzman, what is the point of sending humans to Mars? Well, like, what's the point of exploring anything? What's the point of sending humans to the top of Mount Everest? Like, the point is to climb Mount Everest. What's the point of sending humans to space to be able to do that going to the moon, etc. And so the point of sending humans to Mars will be to send humans to Mars. That's the big point that all of the technology, all of the teamwork, all of the funding, the development, all the research, the technology that went into this incredible achievement of having a human being go to Mars, survive and return safely, required greatness across hundreds of 1000s of people. And we saw from the Apollo program that all of the incredible technology that they developed to send a human to the moon played out in our lives in terms of batteries and new materials and computers and satellite technology. And so all this stuff has a benefit to us just in our day to day lives that happen over the years. And so we'd see the same thing with sending a human to Mars. The other thing, of course, is that Mars is a place that is absolutely fascinating. And we should have a science base on Mars. Human beings are very capable, very adaptable explorers. And so if you send a group of humans to Mars, they're going to be able to do all kinds of geology experiments, looking for biology for life, all these kinds of questions, They'll be able to do it fairly quickly and, and rapidly. And you don't need a lot like say you end up with three, five, 10 humans on Mars at a time, 
rotating between their different crews coming back and forth from Earth. It would be expensive. But you know, when you consider the amount of money that humanity spends on weaponry, just like that alone is a ludicrous amount. And so you could say, like, what's the point of building bombs and warships and aircraft carriers? What's the point of how anybody spends any money ever? Right. So I think that that we know that that money spent invested in space exploration is multiplied in our return on investment for every I forget what it is like for every dollar that gets spent on space exploration, we get about two and a half dollars in return for increased productivity based on that investment. So just the development, the engineering, etc. alone would be worth our while to do. And of course, money spent on going to Mars is actually spent here on Earth. You know, it's spent in the salaries of the scientists on all of the materials, all of the subcontractors that do the work. And I think that exploration, like what is the point of, of exploring in our lives? You have sort of two choices. You've got exploration and you've got exploitation. So for example, do you go to the restaurant that you know and love and eat the meal that you always get because it's a safe choice? Or do you go to a new restaurant that you've never been to with the chances that it's going to suck? But there's also the chance that it's going to be great. And maybe it's going to make your new favorite meal. And so this is the challenge that humanity has always faced. Do we stop and just sort of make the most out of what we know how to do of what we like of what we're good at, etc? Or do we push our limits, push our boundaries, go to new places, find new things, try out new ideas? because we never know. And it seems when you look back at the sum of human exploration of all of the advances that we've made, exploration is has been a good thing has been a net benefit to humanity. And so we can assume that exploration will continue to be a net benefit to humanity out into the future. So that's why we go to Mars, because it's the next place to explore. J.I. Pearson. If a black hole at the center of the Milky Way is 4 million solar masses, wouldn't it then only exert 4 million solar masses worth of gravity on the Milky Way? Yes. Yes, if if the thing only has 4 million times the mass of the sun, then it only exerts 4 million times the mass of the sun's worth of gravity. You know, people think that the supermassive black holes at the hearts of various galaxies are like these giant anchors of the entire galaxy that without this supermassive black hole, then the whole galaxy would just fall apart. And the answer, of course, is that that is not true. The mass of the supermassive black hole is a fraction of a percent of the mass of the galaxy itself, say the mass of the Milky Way or the mass of Andromeda. And if you took the supermassive black hole away, almost nothing would change with the galaxy. The thing that is the gravitationally dominant part of a galaxy is the dark matter halo that surrounds the galaxy. It is like 10 times the mass of the visible matter in the galaxy. And it is like this giant swirling sphere of dark matter. And way down inside that you've got the galaxy that is sort of at the center of this dark matter halo. And way down inside that you've got this supermassive black hole, and the whole dark matter halo is rotating, and the galaxies inside rotating with it. And so it's the dark matter that dominates the movements of the galaxy, not the supermassive black hole, it is just another passenger along for the ride.
Avi's Cotton Flower. Do you think the moon will receive its own artificial magnetic field as a test run for the one on Mars? I don't know how we would give the moon a artificial magnetic field. And I don't even know how we would give Mars one. Like in order to give the moon a magnetic field, you would have to smash it with another object, say the size of the moon, liquefy it again, let its internal core turn into a dynamo again, and then maybe it would be able to generate a magnetic field. And the thinking is, is that early on in the moon's history, it did have a worldwide magnetic fields like the Earth does today. But then as it cooled down very quickly, then it solidified and the dynamo shut down. And then the same thing happened with Mars, it had a magnetic field early on. And then as it cooled down, because it has like 10% the mass of the Earth. So as it cooled down and solidified, its dynamo shut down, and it was no longer able to generate a magnetic field. But of course, when you think about like Venus, Venus is like almost the same size as the Earth, and it doesn't have a geomagnetic field. So what causes a planet's magnetic field is still a bit of a mystery. Like we know that Jupiter has one and Saturn has one and Uranus and Neptune have them. But the ones on Uranus and Neptune are not aligned in the same way as the planets rotation while they are with Jupiter and Saturn and Earth. So there's more science involved, apart from literally destroying the planet for a while. I can't think of a way that you could get a planet wide magnetic field to form. So better just live underground, live in a cave, live in a lava tube. That's your plan. All right, those are all the questions this week. Thank you everyone who sent them in. Again, as always, wherever you are across my channel, Christian pops in your brain, write it down, I will gather them up and I'll answer them here live on Monday at 5pm Pacific time. So come and join. All right, we'll see you next week. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights and links you can find out more. Go to university.com newsletter to sign up. It's totally free. And did you know that all my videos are also available in a handy audio podcast format so that you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device, go to universetoday.com audio or search for universe today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators and a special thanks as always, Chad Weber and Nancy Graziano.